Hi and welcome to Karatotu's Climate Podcast. Focusing on developing countries, we hope to cover a range of issues relating to climate change, agriculture, biodiversity, and many more. Today's guest is Dr. Ana Maria Lobo Guerrero Rodriguez. Ana Maria is Research Director of Climate Action for the Alliance of Biodiversity International and International Center for Tropical Agriculture (CIAT), and also the head of Global Policy Research. for the CGIAR research program on climate change agriculture and food security based in Cali Colombia she holds a master and phd in economics from UCLA she has more than 10 years experience of working on climate change challenges she has years experience working in the public sector to become a key partner of policy makers and planners in the region to find ways to make climate information practical for end users i'm kirti manyan and i'll be your host for today Hi Anna Maria, welcome to our show. We are delighted to have you with us. I am going to get started by asking you this: What was your starting point on your climate change journey? So my starting point. So let me go a little bit backwards. I studied economics as an undergrad. Then I did a master in economics, and then I went to Los Angeles, UCLA, to do a PhD in economics. And I did my PhD and actually the topic of my dissertation wasn't really related to climate change or environmental issues. It was more on economic modeling, so in general model, computable general equilibrium models and using models to address questions such as understanding economic rates in Colombia because of the decentralization process and so on and so forth. So this is just to say that during my phd i i was not related to climate change but then i was when i was finishing just my dissertation i was still living in the united states the person that was leading the environmental unit at the national planning department at that time he wanted to do something very similar to what the stern review did which was basically addressing and understanding the economics of climate change and perhaps i tell you a little bit about the national planning department because it's a very interesting institution that we have in colombia it's somehow the technical counterpart of each one of the ministries in colombia so it's where, where you have more the technical side and the institution is also in charge on formulating public policy thinking about the long run so he wanted to hire an economist recently graduated phd economist to start implementing a model to try to understand the economic impact of climate change in colombia in the different sectors and somehow what he wanted was to start a closer conversation with the ministry of finance in colombia and therefore was very important that a that an economist would be leading this effort so that they could see that the finances in the country who could have drastic impacts because of climate change and that they could have started taking a little bit more seriously climate change issues in colombia so he was looking for an economist that perhaps was not much contaminated with the things that usually economists do in general in colombia that has changed and that's a good thing but at that time good economists were recognized economists were not doing environmental issues now they are so he wanted to have a, a young economist 
with a PhD to start leading this work. So I said, great, I have heard about the issues in relation to climate change. And it was at that point in my career was perfect for me because during my PhD, I realized that I wanted to continue doing research, but I wanted my research to have some kind of impact on people, on livelihoods. So not just being able to publish a paper in a very good top journal, but being really concrete about outcomes of my research. And, and I think that I saw many professors during my, my PhD that were really clever, great, great people, but spending so much time trying to figure out questions and answers in relation to some things that were so far away from, from really touching the lives of people. So for me, it was perfect. I studied my PhD with a scholarship from the Central Bank of Colombia. And one of the requirements was that I had to go back to Colombia to work either for the public sector or for a university in Colombia. So going back to Colombia to work for the National Planning Department and starting leading this economic study on climate change for me was great. And so therefore I started working on that. I went back to Colombia when I finished my dissertation. And then I, I didn't stop. That was back in 2008. And from then I haven't stopped working on climate change issues. I have to say, Ana Maria, I love that you felt at that time itself that whatever research you did needed to have impact. And I think that's so, so important, right? Like, I think with climate change being such a big issue, how best can we translate that into work that impacts livelihoods and people, especially, right? And you talked about that. You said ground reality. That's so important, so, so important to keep that in mind because there are real people being affected by things that you're thinking about and policies that you're making, right? It sounds fabulous. Moving on to my next question, you said you haven't stopped since 2008 and you're now the research director of climate action at CAIT. You're head of global policy research for the CGIAR research program on climate change, agriculture and food security in Cali. Can you talk us through your roles and responsibilities and what role is your organization specifically playing in the fight against climate change? Okay, thank you very much for the question. So, let me go back a little and I will start saying a few words about the CGIAR. That's the big institution that I work for. CGR is, if you could say in a sentence, is the world's largest global agricultural innovation network. And it's composed of thousands of partners. And one of those is this network of international research institutes doing research on different topics in relation to agriculture, to agroforestry and forestry, to water, to fish, to biodiversity, to food policies. In general, we have 15 of them, even though there have been some alliances, and I will go back to this. But this is the CGR. So primarily, I work for the CGR. The CGR has a very clear vision in terms of contributing to having a world free of poverty, hunger, and environmental degradation. So that's very important. And then I just mentioned these research institutes that are part of this CGR. So one of those institutes, which was formally established January this year as an alliance of two of the previous institutes that, that are part of the CGR, is this alliance between 
Biodiversity International and the International Center for Tropical Agriculture, SEAT. As I just mentioned, this is a, an alliance that was formally a structure and started working January this year. And at the alliance, we have also a very clear vision. And what we want to do through our work is to contribute to having food systems and landscapes that sustain the planet, that drive prosperity and nourish people. And we basically work at the intersection of agriculture, nutrition, and the environment. So that's the Alliance vision, and I work for the Alliance. So I work for the CGR and also as part of this Alliance of Biodiversity International and CIET. And then within the Alliance, we have a, a very nice research structure where we have six levers, which are basically research programs where we work and I lead the climate action lever in the alliance. And we also have a very clear vision. And this is basically what I do through my leadership under the climate action lever. So basically what we do is that we convene, we develop and we apply sound science around climate change adaptation and mitigation under a food system approach. But we do this with a very specific purpose. Through this convening, developing, and applying, we want to be able to unlock public and private finance. We want to foster policies and drive institutional changes so that this can produce innovation, investment, and action to address the climate emergency. Within the climate action lever, we have sub-levers that deal with different parts in terms of the research that we do. So we have one for climate resilient food systems, the other one that addresses low emissions food systems. Then we have one for policies and institutions for climate action. Then one that goes more into the finance and investments for climate action. And finally, one that it's cross-cutting in relation to data science for climate action. And therefore, a lot of my role, as you asked me, it's leading this body of work and somehow is making sure that I'm mainstreaming climate action in the food system for adaptation and mitigation. So everything that it's done in the Alliance in relation to the research that we deliver includes this issue on, the, on climate change and the climate emergency. Obviously, I also work in terms of coming up with good partnerships in order to deliver our vision, the Alliance vision, and also in terms of resource mobilization so that we can generate this knowledge and generate impact. In general, I help the Alliance in terms of advancing efforts to develop a unified and very well-managed, agile and innovative research organization that is able to respond to the climate emergency. So that's one part of my role that I do it through the Alliance. And then I also work for the CGR research program on climate change, agriculture, and food security. This is called CCAS, and it's a cross-cutting program working with all the 15 centers that I mentioned at the beginning that are part of the CGR. And in CCAS, I am the head of global policy research. As such, I work in terms of developing innovative partnerships and fostering capacity building so that we can contribute to scaling climate smart agriculture and reaching many, many stakeholders from food systems around the world. And this role implies also being engaged on main projects for CCAFs 
And in general initiatives, for instance, the one that I have been working in the past two years is this transformation initiative. It's basically the rationale behind this transformation initiative is that we are not going to be able to reach the sustainable development goals by 2030 and the Paris Agreement if we continue doing the things the same way that we have been doing. So it's trying to bring a consensus and we have been working with hundreds of partners in terms of understanding what are those key actions that need to happen very soon so that we can transform food systems so that they can respond to the climate challenge. Anna Maria, I have to say your work sounds extremely challenging. You are multitasking furiously, I think, and all of it sounds like amazing work, especially when you talk about reaching across various partnerships to understand how best can food systems respond to climate change. As is with every podcast guest I talk to, I feel an impending sense of doom. So I'm very, very hopeful to hear that all your work will hopefully result in, in things that will bring about change. I want to talk about what climate change means in Colombia now. And can you maybe tell us more about what are the kind of key issues that your country is being faced with? Sure. So let me start by saying that in the last decades, one of the engines of Colombia's GDP growth has been the mining and the oil sector. And in particular, our economy has benefited from high oil prices. But this growth rate has helped the country to reduce poverty, unemployment, increase coverage in relation to social security services. But as I just mentioned, this has generated, this way of growing the economy has generated a tension between economic growth, environmental degradation, and climate change. So, of course, in order to achieve economic and social development, the country needs to continue growing. But the key question is how to continue with this economic growth at the same time that we preserve our natural resources and ecosystem services, and most important, that we grow in a way that it's climate resilient, both thinking about climate change, so long-term changes in climate variables, but also climate variability. So just to tell you, in other words, having a growth that it's damaging our water resources is not compatible with a climate resilient pathway. Why? Because climate change and variability means that water, or better, the lack or excess of water, will become each time more a limiting factor for Colombian economic sectors, agriculture, transport, energy, infrastructure. So going back to the engines of economic growth in Colombia, it is accurate to say that this growth has come attached with an environmental cost that it is also significant for Colombians' growth rates. According to two studies, the costs of environmental degradation in Colombia go up to 3.7% of GDP. So in this same direction, this context of economic growth and environmental degradation exhibits a pattern of land use that has increased the risks associated to hydrometeorological events. And with hydrometeorological events, I'm meaning floods, droughts, hailstorms, windstorms, heavy rains, all of this. So very important, the way that we have been growing has created more risks in terms of these events. Just to give you some numbers, 
Colombia has the highest rate in Latin America of recurring disasters because of natural phenomena. We have more than 600 events per year. And also, Colombia is ranked 10 in terms of economic risks because two or more hazards associated to disasters. So to put it in normal words, around 84% of the population and 86% of the assets in Colombia are located in areas exposed to two or more natural hazards. Something very relevant, if you compare the period 2006-2009 to the period 2010-2013, the number of events classified as hydrometeorological, the ones that I just mentioned, increased by 2.5 times. And this is very relevant in terms of climate variability because what we have learned is that Colombia has a high incidence of extreme events with growing emergencies associated with climate conditions. Just to give you an example, the heavy rains due to the 2010 and 2011 La Nina event resulted in an estimated $6 billion in damages to crops and infrastructure, as well as millions of displacements and hundreds of deaths. So Colombia is at high risk from climate change impacts. Something very relevant, again, the way that we have been growing. The majority of the population lives in the elevated Andes, the mountains, and changes in the hydrological systems are putting at risk the people that lives in these Andes. We are already observing water shortages and land stability that are going to become worse because of climate variability. Also, the majority of the population in Colombia live on the coast, where the increase in sea level and floods because of climate change can affect key human settlements and economic activities. And last thing that I would say is that, because I just, I mentioned the whole story with respect to adaptation. So how changes in climate and how climate variability can affect uh, Colombia's economy. But also the other side of the story is if we are contributing or not to generate climate change. So what about the greenhouse gas emissions that are generating this problem? So very important, Colombia, it's not that it's burning a lot of fossil fuels because most of our energy and electricity is generated through water. So we are very clean with respect to that. But the way that we are contributing to climate change in Colombia is through deforestation. So according to the Third National Communication of Colombia, this sector of agriculture, forestry, and land use changes, it's contributing 55% of all the greenhouse emissions in Colombia. And the most important in this category is the changes inland because of deforestation. So all these issues are the ones that Colombia needs to deal with in relation to the climate challenge. It sounds like it's a multitude of challenges, actually speaking. So then how is the government reacting to climate change, right? I happen to read you were involved in the formulation of the Colombian climate change policy, the national adaptation development plans, as well as you coordinated technical support for the Colombian low carbon food strategy. Can you tell us more about your work in this space? Sure. Yeah, it is very interesting because I was part of that process. So in Colombia, Colombia very much 
It started as many other countries started in terms of addressing the climate challenge. And it was through the mitigation side of things. So the mitigation is how we can reduce greenhouse gas emissions, the ones that are responsible for this climate change. So Colombia very much started through that. And its policy was very much in line with seeing how can we motivate these actions that can reduce greenhouse gas emissions in Colombia while promoting the development of the country. But then it changed. And at that point was when I was working for the government in Colombia, for the National Planning Department. And basically, what we wanted to do was to be able to say, even though climate change, it's very important in terms of environmental issues, this is something that it's going to affect every single sector in Colombia, not only the environmental sector. So a little bit what at that point call us mainstreaming climate change into everything. That was what we're trying to do. And therefore, starting from them, Colombia really started developing a very comprehensive policy framework for its climate change policy across different levels of government, which is very important. So going all the way from the national, regional, and going to the municipal level. In 2011, when I was working for the National Planning Department, the National Council for Social and Economic Policy issued what it's called the COMPES 3700 on climate change. And this COMPES basically outlined the institutional strategy for the articulation of policies and actions on the issue of climate change. Building on this COMPES 3700, several plans, strategies, and activities emanated. So just to give you some examples, we have a law for climate change, and in this law, we provide the guidelines for climate change management. Then we have also the national policy on climate change. The formulation of this policy began in 2014, and the idea of this policy is to articulate all the efforts that had been taking place in the country through different initiatives, and incorporate new elements in order to be able to comply with what was agreed in the Paris Agreement. So it was basically getting all the pieces together and trying to address how can we implement actions in relation to adaptation to climate change and in relation to mitigation. We also have the low carbon development strategy. This strategy seeks to decouple the country's economic growth from greenhouse gas emissions so that we can continue growing, as I just mentioned, but without increasing our greenhouse gas emissions. Then we have also the National Plan for Adaptation to Climate Change. The purpose of this plan is to reduce the country's vulnerability and increase its capacity to respond to the threats and impacts of climate change. We also have the National Red Plus Strategy, Red Plus is a United Nations Pact framework that aims to slow climate change by halting the destruction of forests. We also have a financial strategy to reduce the fiscal vulnerability of the state to the occurrence of a natural disaster. As I already mentioned in my previous question, this is a great challenge for Colombia in terms of increasing uh, the damages because of these natural disasters. And therefore, we have a financial strategy to reduce the vulnerability of the government to these kind of events. Then we have also the national climate change system that it's called CISCLIMA. This CISCLIMA is made up of state, private and non-private entities, policies, standards, processes, resources, strategies, tools, etc. 
and it has several windows. And this national climate change system is somehow the institutional infrastructure that Colombia put in place to really be able to respond to the climate emergency. It has several windows. One is a territorial window, which is very important through the climate change nodes. But then it has also another window in terms of agreeing on what it's the a role of Colombia in the international climate change negotiations, what is its position. It also has a window on financial issues. So given that there's money that it's coming into the country and also money that the government is allocated to climate change, what's the best use of that money or money allocated to respond to the climate emergency? And it has also a scientific window where all the models, the analysis are run and are discussed so that we can respond better to this challenge. We also have the National Development Plan for the country, the last one, which goes from 2018 to 2022, Pact for Colombia, Pact for Equity. And basically, these national development plans are roadmaps that establish the government's objectives, that set programs, investments, and goals for the four-year period. This is relevant because in this national development plan, the government is emphasizing the importance of addressing the climate emergency through a green growth strategy for the country. And then we have another very relevant piece of this puzzle, which is the Colombia National Determined Contribution. The National Determined Contributions are these commitments that the different countries that are part of the United Nations Framework for Climate Change, and that we commit to specific things in relation to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So Colombia's NDC contains an unconditional economic-wide reduction pledge of 20% versus a business-as-usual scenario in 2030, as well as up to 30% below business-as-usual in 2030, conditional to sufficient international support. And lastly, we have a carbon tax as well. So starting the 1st of January 2017, each person in Colombia needs to pay a fixed amount of money for each CO2 tone that it's generated because of the burning of fossil fuels. So as you can see, we have uh, laws, we have policies, we have attacks, we have plans, we have all the pieces of the puzzle together. We really need to start implementing those. It sounds fantastic, like all the various policies you outlined, the government seems to have got its act together, which sometimes I feel when you talk to different podcast guests, it doesn't always feel that way. The government is like, we need to fix this and this is how we're going to do it. It seems to have plans in place and hopefully implementation is there as well. So I want to talk about climate smart agriculture now. And I read a report in CNBC about Kauka Climate Smart Village Project. Could we categorize this as scaling up of the whole process of climate smart agriculture? Yeah, that's a very relevant question. The climate smart villages in Cauca, this is the way that it has called. And this is part of this CGR research program on climate change, agriculture and food security, CCAFs. We have these climate smart villages in many countries around the world. And the idea of these climate smart villages, and this is what is happening in Cauca, Colombia, it's really been able to work with the communities to start understanding what is the potential for different climate smart agriculture practices and technologies. And it's not only thinking about the practice and the technology, but it's also really understanding how these technologies and practices interact 
with very context-specific variables, such as social, cultural, political, institutional. And therefore, by doing this analysis with the communities, by understanding how these social, economic, and political variables interact with these technologies and practices, trying to get some recommendations and learnings on how those climate smart agriculture technologies and practices can be expanded so that many farmers around the world can benefit for those. But this is the thing about climate smart agriculture, that it is very context specific. So something that works mm -hmm. in this specific region, it could be the case that it's not going to work as well in that other specific region. And therefore, that's, this is the importance of these climate smart villages, that, that we are really testing and evaluating and implementing with the communities these practices in order to understand under which specific circumstances these practices work or not. Once that we have a good understanding for those, we have enough arguments and evidence to be able to talk to other kind of stakeholders, either from the government side, from the financial side, that can help us in order to promoting this scaling of climate smart agriculture. So answering to your question, yes, we are seeing, and this has proven to be really powerful in terms of generating the evidence that it's needed so that many people around the world can really benefit from these climate smart agricultural practices and technologies. Thank you for that. I want to talk about food security also in this context. Now, I pulled this from USAID's website and talked about food security in Colombia. It talked about internal conflict. Of course, you described natural disasters that keep happening. And it also talked about the influx of vulnerable Venezuelans and Colombian returnees crossing over into Colombia because of the crisis in Venezuela, which affects food security. And of course, and looming large over all this is COVID-19. How have all these factors affected food security in Colombia? Yes, certainly all these factors greatly affect potentially the country's food security. Let me give you some numbers. According to the Regional Interagency Coordination Platform for Refugees and Migrants of Venezuela, about 1.8 million Venezuelans and 500,000 Colombians who previously lived in Venezuela have been forced to come to Colombia in search of new opportunities and in search of food. This is obviously something that puts the country's food security at risk. According to the same source, in 2020, it is estimated that it will be necessary to provide humanitarian assistance to about 3 million people affected by the regional crisis in Venezuela, of which, from those 3 million, 1.8 million will also need food assistance. Also, another piece of information that is very relevant, the United Nations has estimated that in Colombia, 5.1 million people will need humanitarian assistance and 2.4 million of these 5 million will also need food and nutritional assistance due to internal violence and natural disasters. The internal armed conflict in Colombia that has been going for too long and that Hopefully, we are coming to an end, but this has limited the access of many farmers to crops, to livelihoods, to goods or public services. And this, for many vulnerable households, represents a great risk for food security. Likewise, the high unemployment rate has caused displaced people to have greater limitations 
when it comes to as accessing quality food, which is very important because it's not only the quantity of food, but the quality as well. Yeah. Now, with respect to COVID-19, in the current situation, more than the health issues, which obviously Colombia has suffered a lot from the deaths because of COVID, but it's also very important to take into account that the lockdown, the confinement measures established by the national government have become a great threat to food security since many Venezuelans and Colombians, even before COVID-19, were in very vulnerable situations depending on their salaries to survive. And now that the economy is at a stop, that this is disaccelerating, all these people that lost their jobs, they have been very, very much affected. And potentially this is already ongoing and it's going to affect each time more their food security. Well, the way you've described it sounds very similar to the situation in India, very honestly. Lockdown is affecting economic security. It's affecting farmers doing the job, it's affecting the food supply itself. And obviously, it is inevitably rather, you know, it's a vulnerable populace that gets affected. I want to move on to women and agriculture in Colombia. Now, I read about Asopaspu. This sounds like a brilliant project. The stories coming from there sound so powerful. Can you talk more about the project itself? And are there similar projects planned and what more needs to be done to help women feel more empowered in this area? Sure. So, ASOPASFU is the Asociación de Agricultores, Productores Pecuarios, Piscicultores y Ambientalistas de Pasifueres. It is an amazing project that has helped women from the Pasifueres community to join forces to work together and contribute to the recovery of 900 hectares of wetlands in the area, benefited more than 4,000 people. So, really nice, nice project. There are many like this in Colombia. Another example is Asomucadi, for instance. This is a legally constituted organization which aims to promote the empowerment of rural women through the production and commercialization of coffee and some of its derivatives in Algeria, Cauca, which is one of the municipalities that has been most affected uh, for illicit crops. So many, many, many examples of this. But it is important to say that even though we have those initiatives that are tackling this issue with respect to women participation, inclusion, equity, many women living in rural areas are still facing very hard conditions in their territories. So something that is really relevant that came from a study from the Ministry of Agriculture, they did a study between 2010 and 2011, the outlook was not very encouraging for this woman. So According to this study, there are still 5.1 million women living in rural areas that are facing very hard conditions. They have to take care of households, also have to take care of their crops without any remuneration. And then with climate change and climate variability, the things are becoming even worse. Something that is really relevant that came out from that study is that women are at a disadvantage in the sector since, for example, only 7% of these have received technical assistance for their crops compared to 10% for men. Even though it's very slow, the technical assistance in agriculture is very low in Colombia, but then you can see these differences that obviously are impeding women to uh, be well prepared for and an improve in terms of their crops. There are other cultural and social elements such as access to education in which women are in, in a disadvantage with respect to men, health, quality of the information. There's also gender violence. So all these things increase their 
vulnerability. So bottom line, even though there are some really nice examples in Colombia that are addressing this, we need to work harder with respect to this. It is essential that the government create rural policies with gender approaches aimed at reducing inequality because there's, as I mentioned, still a lot of challenges to be addressed with respect to this. So you played perfectly well into my next question in that sense. You know, I, I was going to ask about politics and policy. You've outlined a whole lot of policies that the government is doing with regard to solving climate change and you address women in agriculture. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the government needs to do to help organizations like yours? And then can you talk also about bridging the gap between science and policy, please, within this context? Yeah, so just let me tell you a, a short story about something that was really interesting in Colombia in terms of bridging that gap between science and policy. And this was in relation to the process of formulating the national determined contribution in Colombia. At that point was the intended national determined contribution back in 2015. So since I used to work before previously to joining the CGR, I, I used to work for the government. I had a lot of networking with respect to that. And then I was on the other side of the story. But that was really useful in terms of really being able to bridge this gap. And this, we got an outcome in relation to this because when the government was inviting people to write their NDC, there was a lot of challenges in terms of the forestry sector. In terms of the data, there was not an agreement. And at some point from the government side, they said, we are not going to, to include the forestry sector in our NDC target. And for me, that was a real mistake because including that in the NDC opened the door for a lot of opportunities in terms of implementing actions to preserve our forests. Yeah. So at that point, CCAPS, that I work for, this CGR research program, started working really nice as a broker between one of our research institutes, IFPRI, which is the International Institute for Food Policy Research, and they had generated really nice mitigation scenarios for the forestry sector. Basically, they had developed highly disaggregated analysis of low emissions development strategies, considering different scenarios, and it was a perfect complement to the capabilities of Universidad de los Andes, which is a university in Colombia that was advising the government in terms of these targets. So somehow CCAPS was a broker between these two and between the governments. And after many, many discussions, after many workshops, dialogues, etc., the government agreed to use this analysis to inform the target of the NDC in relation to the forestry sector. And the forestry became part of this, was one of the sectors that was part of this target. So it was a really interesting result because you as a scientist, for you, whenever these things happen, is you are so happy because the, the policy is really using the scientific results, in this case, the results of the models in terms of informing a very specific policy decision. We even wrote a paper in relation to this process. One of the things that we highlight in this paper, it's just like, main key elements or key elements, sorry, for success of this bridging the gap between science and policy. First of all, we highlight the importance of sustain an open consultation process with all the stakeholders. And that was happened at that time. Also very, very relevant, being able to generate usable science, science that can be applied and used and willingness to break disciplinary and institutional barriers. 
having a champion, it's also very important, and flexibility in the availability of resources. Something, and responding to your question, something that we have used in CCAPS that have proven to be really, really useful is that we have used this three-thirds principle. So we propose that an effective agricultural research for development program invests a third of its resources in working with next users to build the relationships and to define their needs from research. So inviting them to be part of this conversation in terms of what are the research questions. So one third of budget should be allocated to that. One third should be allocated on research because of course we need to, to do the research. And the last third needs to be allocated on enhancing next user's capacity so as to improve the uptake of the research. So again, going back to your question, I think that what we need is to work closer. And these institutions such as CCAFs are perfect to be like these brokers that can communicate very well with the scientific world, but that can communicate also very well with the policymaker worlds, being able or helping them to connect and to engage in a dialogue. It sounds like a win-win, you know, the government is listening to science and science is willing to help the government and policymaker decide for its own benefit, right, in that sense, because the policies they decide are going to affect the people who are living in terms of ground reality. So it sounds like an absolute win-win. I want to understand about the climate change narrative and how that is being presented by the media to ordinary Colombians. And does this need to be changed are ordinary Colombians aware of what is happening? Do they attribute it to climate change or is it just, oh, it's a natural disaster and that's that? So I guess that in general, social media in Colombia, I could say, and I would say that does not offer enough information so that ordinary Colombians can perceive the magnitude, the consequences and the possible solutions of climate change in the country. The information that is shared by the media is very much related to natural disasters, to droughts, to floods, to hazards, very much alarmist and, if you could say, sensationalist. I believe that the media should be offering more stories that provide hope, where ordinary people are leading exciting initiatives, stories that can move the emotions of people, stories that are close to people, so that ordinary Colombians can relate to those stories. I think that social media in Colombia should provide more information on how you and I can be part of the solution, that climate change adaptation and mitigation is also in our hands. We need information that can educate and that can become a call for action. Also, that can help to move people, and this is very important, to request more aggressive action from politicians and decision makers on this issue. Of course, there are some examples in Colombia such as a newspaper that it's El Espectador that annually publishes around 500 articles on issues related to health, the environment, science. So we have exceptions, but we still need a long way to go with respect to this. And something very relevant, this was a survey implemented in 2016 by IDEAM and UNDP in Colombia, and it showed that only 15% of Colombia felt informed of climate change. So 75% of Colombia felt very little informed or totally uninformed in relation to climate change. Oh, gosh. And I think that something very relevant in another study was that this study found that many sources of news on climate change are coming from politicians, so 37% of that. Witnesses, 20%. Scientific experts, only 14%. So I think that still there's an imbalance in relation to that. I think that if I could summarize Although 
the media in Colombia is covering the events related to climate change and impacts, and it's reaching only 15% of the population, mainly through television and through radio. There is still a need to refine certain things when presenting the information. We needed to be more accurate and that it really can become a way for concrete actions to begin to take place in this field. So in connection with this, like we talk about climate strikers, you know, kids are around the world who are striking for climate. And so is informed activism a thing in Colombia? And do you actually feel that this kind of activism in terms of, you know, what Greta Thunberg is doing, you have the Sunrise Movement, all these kind of movements, do you think this kind of activism has an impact? Will it then give that feeling of empathy to people? The remaining 75% of Colombians who don't get this information, do you think by or participating in informed activism, that change will happen? Yeah, totally. I totally agree. I think that in recent years, Colombia uh, climate activism has increased. Uh, proof of this is the protest that took place in September 2019, one year ago, in which thousands of people from different cities in the country joined their voices to be part of this global strike and protest to demand urgent measures to stop this environmental catastrophe. So that's happening. We have also youth-driven campaigns that have been developed through social networks. One thing that it's missing is that not everybody has internet in Colombia. There are some people that do not have, so social networks lose their effectiveness. But something really interesting is that for this reason, in rural areas, young activists have turned to arts and music as means to transmit their messages and demand strong action from the government in the face of these problems caused by climate change. Obviously, there's a still a long way to go in terms of having more of this activism, but in general, I think that this is totally fundamental to deliver this, this change that needs to happen to address the climate emergency. In the transformation report that I just mentioned at the, my first or second question, uh, that we highlight these 11 actions for transforming food systems under climate change, one of those actions was in relation to this to drive social change for more sustainable decisions with a very specific target. We aim, with the collaboration of many partners around the world, to reach 10 million young people by 2025 through science-based social movements to catalyze climate action in food systems. And we do this because we totally believe that for a transformation in food systems to take place, behavioral change on a large scale is necessary. Going all the way from producers to consumers. And we believe that social movements have the power to trigger this transformation. Let me just finish by highlighting high key actions from our perspective in terms of how to link science to social movements to support this transformation. First one, we need to use behavioral science to design interventions, understand how people can behave in a different way. Second, we need to translate scientific knowledge for a broad audience through the media, through different ways. Third, we need to communicate messages in innovative ways, the arts, the music. Four, we really need to bring youth into this discussion. And finally, we need to improve education in order to raise awareness. It all sounds like actionable tasks. Is this challenge of, of reaching teenagers and youth who are more interested in maybe not so interested in climate is always a tough one, I think. But I find it very inspiring myself just to see how kids have actually taken up the cudgels and have said, you know, we need this to be dealt with and are demanding. It's not just saying we want action, 
but they're demanding action from governments. And I think it's a very, very powerful thing to happen. I'm going to my last question now. How do we look at tackling climate change? Is it about individual action? Is it only about government policy? What is your call of action? What do you think the one thing that we need to do in that sense is? So let me start by saying that the time to act is now. This is urgent. We need to start doing things now because if not, it's going to be too late. So that's my first message. Second one, we all need to be part of this. Thinking about this transformation of food systems to address the climate emergency, we all have a role to do in this. So that's my second message. And my third one is that I believe that science, policy, and finance need to join forces to really propose and implement enabling solutions for climate change challenges. We need to work interaction of these three, science, policy, and finance. Thank you so much. That's a very powerful thought to end on, right? You've said it very, very well. Thank you so much for your insightful answers, Ana Maria. I'm sure our listeners have heard, learned a whole lot about what's happening in Colombia, how the government is dealing with it, and the challenges you yourself are facing. So thanks again for your time. We really appreciate it. No problem. Very happy to be with you. <laughs>